Sal, otherwise known as Tessio, he's one of my favorite characters in the movie The Godfather because of the insight that he gives us into how temptation works in our lives, men. Sal was an underboss for the Corleone family, but when it appeared they had lost power, he betrayed them and conspired with a rival family. This is what temptation does in our lives. It's opportunistic, it's shrewd, it's crafty, devious, always scheming for a way to take advantage of us. I I know it's Father's Day weekend, but we're going to speak tonight to all the men here that are in the room. Proverbs 14, 11 through 12, listen to these verses. It says, the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the godly will flourish. It's our choice which one of those two is going to define our lives. Listen to verse 12. There is a path before each person that seems right, but in the end, it leads to death. Temptation does not show up in my life and in your life and say, hey, let me help you ruin your life and destroy your family. Right, Because who's saying yes to that? Temptation presents itself to us in a way that always looks on the onset as something that's going to be pleasing to us. Just a, several weeks ago at our men's breakfast, if you were there, three men shared. All, it was just phenomenal. One of the men talked about three specific things that he struggled with. And as he was sharing, I could feel the Holy Spirit whispering to my heart, Fred, I want you to expound on these three things further for Father's Day weekend. And that began the journey of this message that I'm sharing with you tonight. Sal has put out a hit on the character of men. And their names are Stress and anger, and lust. Father, for every man that's here tonight that's struggling with one of these three things, I pray that this weekend in June of 2017 is going to be the turning point of their life. Father, as they look back years from now onto this weekend, as they begin to tell their story, they're going to say, something happened in my life that weekend, Father's Day weekend of June 17, that began to change my life forever. Father, for men that struggle with these three, or maybe for some men that are here tonight that are stuck in the trap of one of these three, that tonight is going to be the night that they begin to break free. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said, amen. Somebody say stress. I'm going to give you a book that I want to recommend to you for each of these three. There are amazing resources, men, that are available to us. So if you're struggling with any of these three, I'm going to encourage you. You might be struggling with all three of these, and you need to get all three of these books and benefit from the teaching that's in there. The first one is by John Ortberg. It's the book Soul Keeping. Anything by John Ortberg is great. He's one of my favorite authors. But this one in particular really begins to dig deep and gives you some practical ways that you can begin to care for your heart in a way that you can begin to break free from stress. Listen to this quote from a Stanford neuroscientist, Robert Sapolsky. It says, stress hormones are brilliant, adapted to help you survive an unexpected threat. You mobilize energy in your thigh muscles. You increase your blood pressure. You turn off everything that's not essential to surviving, like digestion and growth and reproduction. You think more clearly, and certain aspects of learning and memory are enhanced. But non-life-threatening stressors, such as constantly worrying about money or pleasing your boss, also trigger the release of adrenaline and other stress hormones, which over time can have a devastating effect on our health. If you turn on the stress response chronically for purely psychological reasons, you increase your risk of adult-onset diabetes, high blood pressure, and a host of other health risks, some of which can even lead to death. 
So let me give you three things that I use in my life on a weekly basis to help me deal with stress. This is a temptation that I struggle with. The first one is this, it's prayer. The temptation of stress lures us into a place of worry over things we can't control. The temptation of stress lures us into a place of worry over things that we cannot control. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything and tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 2,000 years ago, when the Apostle Paul wrote this, guess what? People struggled with stress, just like we struggle today. And the thing that worked for them is the same thing that's going to work for us. The simple difference between prayer and worry is the focus of your conversation. Worry is just self-talk, right? Worry is continually going to something in your mind over and over and over. Some of you, you've been doing it ever since you walked into the service, right? There's something happening in your workplace or there's something happening with one of your kids or your marriage, right? And you're just, it's just replaying in your mind. Oh, you're just milling over it. Oh, it's obsessive. You take that same process, you make that a conversation about God, you've turned worry into prayer, and I'm telling you, something will begin to change in your heart. I do this for myself all the time. I get caught up in something, and I'm just thinking about it. There's, there's an obsessive part of, of who I am. If you're a task-oriented person like me or a type A personality, we can get sucked into this trap. And, and I've learned that in those moments, I just begin to make that a conversation with my Heavenly Father. Prayer, power is the next one. The temptation of stress lures us into a place of believing we can't control the impact of our emotions. The temptation of stress lures us into a place of believing we can't control the impact of our emotions. See, this is what the devil does. The devil wants us to obsess over the things that we can't control, and he doesn't want us to give any attention to the parts of us that we can control. He wants us to get stuck into this place of believing that we can't control the things that we should and that we should try to control the things that we can't and then we get stuck in this place of stress and it's a terrible trap. Look at Colossians 3.15. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. I love that second word. It says, and let, which means that you have a choice. You you, got to choose to say, I want the peace of Christ to rule in my heart. You have to choose to say, I'm not going to let these emotions drive me. Now, we can't control the onset of emotion. We can't do it. It's part of the human experience. Something happens to you, we feel anger. Something happens to you, you feel sad. Right? Something happens to you, it makes you happy. Right? The, the, the part of the human experience is the way God made us is emotions, they just come. And, and we have very little control over the onset of the emotion. But where we have to begin to self-govern is once that emotion wells up inside of us, we have to make a decision as to how that emotion is going to impact me and how it's going to instruct my actions. That's where self-control. Self-control can't precede emotion. The emotion comes, the character and the virtue of self-control steps in, and then I begin to choose how that emotion is going to affect my life. Prayer, power, and people. These are the three most important things you can do if you struggle with stress. The temptation of stress lures us into a place of false loyalty to relationships that are unhealthy. 
We tend to hold on to relationships that we shouldn't because we find ourselves more concerned about our image than we are about our character. Proverbs 12, 25, worry weighs down a person, but an encouraging word cheers them up. Isn't that good? Because the only way that encouraging word can come to your life is through the people that you're running with. Worry weighs down a person. We all, we all suffer from this. There's times where we're worried, right? It gets the better of us. But what does it say? An encouraging word is what cheers us up. Sometimes you need to change your crowd if you're going to change your outlook on life. You and I should be surrounding ourselves with people who are hopeful about the future because of what they believe about the goodness of God. We should be surrounding ourselves with people. Now you might say, well, Fred, how can we ever fulfill the Great Commission or reach people who are hurting? No, 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 you've got to do that too, but those people just can't be your inner circle that you're looking to in times of trouble. Right? Those are people that you've got to be working to reach, but you're only going to be in the condition that you need to be to reach people who are hurting and broken if you've got healthy people surrounding you, helping you with the areas of your life that are broken. Somebody say anger. Gary Chapman, another great author. Again, anything that he writes, you should check it out. Anger, taming a powerful emotion. Listen to what he says. Anger is a cruel master. If you struggle even a little with anger, you know it. You know how it feels to get mad too easily, to lash out at someone that you love, to hold on to frustration. You might even notice that others are uneasy to be around you. You know anger is hurting your life, but you don't know how to fix it. There's hope. When you understand why you get angry and what to do about it, you can change the course of your life for the better. Whether your anger is quiet or explosive. See, not everybody that struggles with anger is out there with it, right? They're just boiling on the inside. If it's clouding your judgment and hurting your relationship, it needs to go. Learn to handle anger in healthy ways starting today. Listen to this verse. Love this verse. 2 Timothy 4, 5, right? Paul's writing to his young protege and preparing him for his future in ministry and Paul understanding that this next generation needs to be prepared to take over the work of the church. Listen to what he writes in 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter in the fifth verse. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. He's talking about not giving in to anger. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Right? So he's giving him his circumstance. This is a fill-in-the-blank moment for you. That might not be what's causing you anger, but that was the thing that he knew, Timothy, and what he was going into, and he understood who Timothy was. And so he was saying, hey, there's going to be times where, where you're going to suffer for your work because of what you're doing for Christ, and you're going to be tempted to be angry. He's saying, no, you've got to have a clear mind, even in those situations. Listen to what he tells him to do. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that God has given to you. Paul's not given Timothy a disconnected list of things that he needs to do every day. He's trying to help him to understand that there is a causal relationship that exists in our lives that if we're struggling with anger, one of the most important things that we can do to build the character in us that's going to help us fight against that anger so we can keep a clear mind in every situation is that we've got to be faithful in the assignment that God has given to us. It's not a miscellaneous list of tasks. He's saying to this young man, you have got to align your life with the Bible. And when you align your life with the Bible, you find yourself being ever increasingly more faithful in your assignment. 
And the more faithful you are in your assignment, the less vulnerable that you're going to be to anger. You've got to decide the authority that you're going to let Scripture have in your life. You've got to make a decision about what you believe about this book. Is, is it just an encouraging book that's going to help you through life? Is it, is it something that, that maybe you've gotten to the place where you say, yeah, I believe that God wrote it and he gave it to me. I believe that it's, it's trustworthy, but, but I think maybe parts of it are a little out of date. Right? You and I have to get to a place where we say, the creator of the universe is able because he's perfect to give us exactly what we need. And even though it was written in a different time, the truth that in it is timeless. And this book is supposed to be a voice of authority in my life. It's supposed to be a voice of authority in your life. What does that mean? It means that when you're reading this book and something in your life is not in alignment with what's in here, you're responsible to make the changes that you need to make so that you can fit into this book. We had our car at Firestone the other day. They're trying to do an alignment. You know how that works? They put it on a machine. There's specs based on the year, the make, the model of your car that tells them they set that machine. And then they begin to make adjustments on that vehicle until it comes into alignment so it can go down the road the way that it's supposed to. Every time we open this book, it's like driving our life up onto that alignment machine. And the stuff that we find in us that's not in alignment, it has to get adjusted. It has to get adjusted. Or we're going to be riding down the road of life a little crooked and we're going to do a lot less for God. If you're struggling with anger, there's a lot of things that you're going to need to do. Getting this book is going to be one of them. But I'm just telling you right now, one of the most important things that you can do is to begin to find a new level of faithfulness in your life in the assignment that God has given to you. And if you don't know what the assignment that God has given to you, then the first and best thing that you can do is get involved in the church that you call home and your life is going to get immersed with people around you and they're going to help you figure that out. Stress, anger, somebody say lust. This book right here, I'm just telling you, is the best book that I've ever read on sexuality as it relates to men. If you've not read this book and you're a man, you gotta read this book. If you've got children, you gotta read this book because you and I have a responsibility to help our children understand how God made them. The church has been silent for far too long in the conversation of sexuality. One of the four sessions that we do in premarital counseling, one of them is on sexuality. And, and, and this young couple that we were counseling, she used to go to this church years ago, and she, she doesn't anymore. And, and, but they said, we want you to still do our wedding. They live way down uh, deep in Chesapeake. And so we did their last premarital counseling session just this week. And, and, uh, and we try to time it, right, for obvious reasons when we talk about this session. So they're just weeks away from their wedding. And, uh, and it's a pretty entailed conversation. And so as we're teaching them, at one point, we started talking about how the church is just too silent on this issue. And, and we said, you know, probably about every 18 months, we do a sermon on sexuality in church. Now, we let parents know that, hey, this is an adult conversation. If you're keeping kids in here, we give, a, give them a chance to get out. But we get really specific, right? And as we're having this premarital counseling conversation, and we're, we're getting pretty specific with some of our terminology, he stops and says, do you say that in the sermon? And I said, oh, yeah, we do, and a lot more than that. 
right? Because the church has got to regain the ground that it's abdicated to a world. God created sexuality. He loves pleasure. That's why he gave us a capacity for it. And we need to teach people the chemistry of the human body and how that fits with our spiritual journey. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 4. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. His first mistake, he stayed. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked, his second mistake, he looked out over the city. He noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. That was his third mistake he sent. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. He made three critical mistakes in dealing with his own sexuality. He stayed, he looked, and he sent. Isolation, access, and entitlement. Isolation, access, and entitlement. Men, if this is the one on your list that you're struggling with, I guarantee you, you're probably making all three of these mistakes in your life. If your life isn't immersed in relationships with other Christian men, you're vulnerable to the temptation of lust. Personality needs to stop being permission-giving in men's life to keep them isolated. I don't care how introverted you are. I don't care how shy you are. That might determine how many men are in this inner circle of your life that know you well enough to ask you the hard questions and men you trust enough to be honest about things that you're struggling with. If you're an intensely introverted and shy person, then you might have a really small circle of guys, but you got to at least have a circle with a couple of guys in it. If you're extroverted and you're one of these guys that just always like to be around people, then your circle might be a little bit bigger, but you and I have got to have a circle or we're going to be like David and we stay behind in relationship. We find ourselves isolated. We're vulnerable to the temptation of lust. David looked. He had access. Men, today's rooftop is technology. It's the rooftop of our existence as men. You can wander out on that rooftop anytime you want. And anything that you could ever hope to find is just a button away, just a click. If you don't have a plan to limit your access to everything that you could see, you're vulnerable to the temptation of lust. Pride needs to stop being permission giving in your life to get help. The technology that's available to us today, it's our rooftop. It gives us access. But by the same token, the technology that's available to us today, we couldn't be more safe. You just got to use the stuff that's available. If you got kids in your home, I hope whatever, if you've got a modern day type cable service, there's all kinds of parental controls that are in that television that you can set. You can block out stuff on your God. You can have passwords. You can take certain channels out so not any, anyone could see it. You might say, well, Fred, I don't know how to do all of that stuff. You let us know. We'll come to your house and help you set it up. Don't let pride stop you from getting the help that you need. 
You might say, well, I'm not interested in looking at that stuff. Maybe you're not, but it could be that someone else is in your home that is. You have a responsibility to be the protector of your home. Smartphones, computers, iPads, tablets, whatever it is, there is so much software that is available to us today, men, that can limit your access to what's out there. If pride is stopping you from taking advantage of those resources, I'm just telling you, it's your own fault. And you've got to stop being guilty of not getting the help that you need. You might say, well, we don't have kids, but yeah, maybe it is something that I struggle with. And maybe you've never talked about that when you get home, right? Sit down with your wife, figure out how to put all those things on your TV. If you don't, let us know. We'll send people there to help you. I'll come help you. Come on. And give the password to your wife so that if she goes to bed early and you're downstairs watching TV by yourself, then you're limiting your access. You're no different than King David. If you don't limit what you can see when you get out on the rooftop of life, you're going to see stuff you're not supposed to. And I'm telling you, once you see it, it's hard to resist it. He stayed. He was isolated. He looked. He had access. This is his last mistake. He sent. He had a, a sense of entitlement as the king to what he could do. Now, we're not kings in this room, right? But we struggle with the same sense of entitlement that David struggled with thousands of years ago. Sexual pleasure, it's not a right. It isn't. I don't care what the world's lying to you about out there. Sexual pleasure is not a right. It's a privilege. And that privilege doesn't even belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. If you're married, it belongs to your wife. And if you're not married, it belongs to the wife that you're going to one day be married with. And if you don't have a plan to ever be married, then it belongs to God. Sexual pleasure, if we get into this place where we have a sense of entitlement to satisfy our desires, it's trouble. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 4. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. These notes will be on the website online if you want to download them. But 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 4 talks about this idea in, in marriage relationships. Your body, it belongs to the other person. It doesn't belong to you. Until you see your capacity for sexual pleasure as a responsibility to protect instead of a desire to satisfy, you are vulnerable to the temptation of lust. Let me read that again. Until you see your capacity for sexual pleasure as a responsibility to protect instead of a desire to satisfy, you are vulnerable to the temptation of lust. There is a hit on the character of men. Stress and anger and lust. If you knew that somebody was coming to your house tonight to do you harm, you would do something to get ready. Right? You would do something. You wouldn't just wander on home, wait for them to get there just to see what's going to happen. No, you're going to call Chuck Jordan. You're going to call 911. You're going to find out who got the best score on the hammer hold at the men's, right? You're going to do something. If you have a family and you woke up in the middle of the night and there was someone in your house, you would do something. You would do what you could to protect your wife and your children. 
You wouldn't do what you normally do when the kids wake you up, honey, and go back to sleep. Something would well up inside of you because God made you as men to be protectors. But yet so often we're not even protecting ourselves when it comes to the part of us that's going to live forever. What did Jesus say? He said, hey, don't, don't fear those that could harm your body. You should be more concerned about the one who has authority over your eternity. That's your creator in heaven. Something inside of me has got to live my life in such a way that says, God, I want my life to be pleasing to you, and I want to do well and overcome when temptation comes my way, whether it's stress, anger, lust, or some other temptation that you might be struggling with. God made us to overcome in those moments. He never chooses to tempt us because temptation always hopes that you're going to fail, but he does test us. The book of James talks to us about this. This idea of testing means that God allows you to get into situations and circumstances because he knows that when you overcome in that moment, you get stronger. So don't bemoan the fact that temptation comes your way. You should look at that as an opportunity to say, this is another opportunity for me to win, for my character can grow, and I can even be more prepared for the temptation that's waiting for me in my future. Because I got some news for you. The temptation is going to get harder for you throughout your life. The enemy is going to do what he can to try to derail our destiny, to cause you to fall short, and to minimize the impact that your life is supposed to have on others. I'm going to invite the men in the room to stand. So I'm going to make you an offer that you can't refuse. Yeah. Not like the ones that you see in the Godfather series. Because when, right, when, 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 when someone in the Godfather series says, I'm going to make them an offer that they can't refuse, we understand what that means, right? We understand that it means you do this or else. Jesus is making us an offer that we can't refuse. Not because he's threatening us, but because what he offers is so unbelievably irresistible it should capture our heart. We have been created with a heart for an appetite for life. And it will only be fully satisfied when we are fully committed to a life of devotion to Jesus. So this is how I want to close things out tonight. I'm, I want you to stay standing. And I'm, I'm going I'm to ask everyone in the room, I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes. Even the men who are standing, just to create a moment of privacy. No one's going to be walking around or doing anything that would make you feel nervous. We're all just, we're just creating a moment of privacy for us in this room tonight. And, and this is the question I want to ask to you. If, if you're in this room tonight, men, if you're in this room tonight, and, and you, as you look back onto the story of your life, you cannot find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. This is just between you and God and me. But as you look back into the story of your life, if you can't find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, I'm just going to invite you to slip your hand up. Just slip it up where you are. This is my other question I want to ask. If, if you're a man in this room tonight, I'm not going to ask you to do anything else, right? I'm not that pastor that gets you to do three things, and the next thing you know, you're in some room somewhere having a conversation with someone that you don't know. But if you're here tonight and you would say, I struggle with one of those three things, 
I'm going to invite you to raise your hand. I just want everybody to keep their eyes down. If you struggle with one of those three things tonight, just put your hand up and just keep it up, right? All right, that's good. Thank you. Lots of hands all over the place. Father, I pray for the men who are standing in this room tonight. I pray for the men who, who have their hand raised up in the air. Father, we know that you created them to overcome and not to bow down and give in to the temptation that they struggle with in this life. And I pray, Father, that tonight would be the night, just even that act of raising their hand in a moment of vulnerability would be the first step of them beginning to put a plan together in their life to overcome. Whether it's stress, whether it's anger, or whether it's lust, whether it's buying that book, whether it's giving me a call, whether it's reaching out to one of the other men that are here. Maybe it's a conversation that somebody's going to have on the way to that baseball game tonight. Maybe it's going to be during the seventh inning stretch that they're going to find a moment where they can just look to someone they trust, begin to talk about the struggle that they have. Father, you sent your son to die for us not so we could live a mediocre life, but so that we could live the best of lives. That's the offer, Jesus, that you give to us in John 10.10, 10, that we might have life and have it to the fullest possible measure. Father, I pray for every man in here tonight that something inside of us would well up, that we would want more out of life, and we would always want to do everything better. That we would strive not out of our human effort, but as we rely on your strength, that we would believe the promises that you have spoken over us in your word, that you created us to be more than conquerors. Help us to conquer the temptation that continues to undermine the voice that we're supposed to have in this world. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody said together, amen. amen. Tickets left for the game, do we know? we got a handful of tickets left, so this is what I want you to ask you to help me do. So there's a cafe that's all set up down the hall for you. And uh, if you want to hang out after the service, we'd love to hang out with you. But we're going to ask that you do it down there so we can get this stuff teared down in here so we can head to the game. If you want to go to the game, come on, go get a ticket, and we'll see you there. We'll see you next week.